0: Hello, this is Eden on 88.9 The Bridge. Welcome back to my show, Garden of Eden. It's Garden of Eden and I'm your host. I talk about what I like most, Garden of Eden. (laughs) Today, I'm joined with a fantastic guest. Theodore W. Teo Gray is the co-founder of Wolfram Research, a science author, co-founder of app developer TouchPress, and so much more. He's written several books explaining elements, molecules, and reactions, most notably Elements, colon, a visual exploration of every known atom in the universe, which has now sold well over 1 million copies in 24 languages. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Hey, it's great to be here.
0: So to start off, I, I found from my research that you seem to have like these two main sides, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, computer science and chemistry. And computer science being more what you do professionally and chemistry being more what you consider to be um, a hobby. Uh, And I think if it sounds good to you that we should start off with talking a little bit about computer science.
1: Well, I think that that was actually an accurate description maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, Mm. but it's kind of flipped actually and in fact it would be the second flip because you know in school like I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry right mm-hmm. so in terms of professional qualifications chemistry is what I actually have a degree in as opposed to computers like I don't have a CS degree or anything like that but you know I dropped out of graduate school you know chemistry graduate school and co-founded Wolfram Research and started doing I don't know, computer science is kind of a, a highfalutin term for it. I mean, I, I think, you know, software development programming or whatever mm-hmm. is is the term I would prefer. But, you know, so I did that for like 23 years, I think, sort of actively, you know, professionally working as a software developer and an interface designer and stuff like that. Um, but then I kind of accidentally slipped into writing about chemistry and collecting elements and building this table and such then eventually I left Wolfram. I don't work there anymore. I mean, I still have an office there with all of my elements in it. It's kind of preserved like a little shrine to me, but I don't, like professionally, haven't done software development in well over 10 years, other than for my own, you know, I just, I write my own programs to solve various random problems that I have. Professionally speaking, I've been making a living as a writer, primarily about chemistry. Although I recently started writing about other things. Um, so really you know like chemistry is now my profession and I write programs for hobby type purposes. So you know it flipped twice right? I mean first I was going to be a prof- my plan was to be a chemistry professor or something like that going you know get a PhD in chemistry. Uh, then I flipped into doing computers seriously and now I flip back into chemistry again and now you know I'm now kind of off doing mechanical things and have various branches of my activities going on doing that kind of thing.
0: Specifically speaking of um, software development, uh, what is your history with Wolfram Research and what specifically did you do there? And then how are you involved in it today?
1: Well, so, I mean, I was a graduate student at Berkeley doing theoretical chemistry. And I I went home to Illinois for the summer and also to kind of, you know, this 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 crazy guy, Stephen Wolfram, was asking me if I wanted to work on a project of his. And I didn't really know that much about it, but it sounded interesting. And so I thought I'd go and work for the summer, you know, when there's no classes, whatever. I thought I would, you know, just work on this for the summer and see what happens. And at the end of the summer, I literally forgot to tell Berkeley that I wasn't coming back again. <laughs> I was so completely switched over because it was just totally obvious to me that this project was far more interesting than anything that was gonna happen to me in graduate school. And like a year later, I got a letter from them saying, by the way, you're not a student here anymore because you haven't responded to us for a year. And they canceled my student insurance or something. So, you know, it's like, I basically just evaporated from Berkeley and started working on Mathematica, except it wasn't called that at the time. And then, you know, a year or so later, we officially, you know, formed the company Wolfram Research and the name Mathematica, which was suggested by Steve Jobs, and you know, released version one of Mathematica. And my, you know, my role originally was the user interface, which at the time was Macintosh only. It, I mean, this was back a long time ago. I mean, this was 1988. So, um, you know, the Mac was a relatively new thing. It had just been out for a couple of years the notion of user interfaces, as opposed to you're typing like, you know, at a keyboard and it's like a, it's called a glass teletype. It's like you type a sentence, you type a line of text, it types a line of text back at you, um, you know, like a command line prompt. That was the normal thing. And this idea of having a mouse, you know, with windows and you click on things and that was all kind of new and not something that Stephen was really familiar with, you know, whereas I've been doing it for, a couple years i mean ever since the actually before the mac before the mac came out i'd been doing that sort of programming uh, just as a hobby as a while i was a student supposedly studying chemistry i was really spending most of my time programming computers which should have been a hint but uh, anyway so you know my job was to create a user interface for mathematica so i invented this thing called notebooks which is how it's like the primary interface for using Mathematica as a programming language or as an environment for technical computing or whatever we call it. And uh, that's what I then spent the next 23 years doing was you know elaborating and developing that mm-hmm. that sort of interface portion. And you know there's now a whole department that works on that, but not me because I left.
0: Okay. So, for I guess people who are unfamiliar listeners who might not know what Mathematica and Wolfram Research are, what would you describe them as in simple terms?
1: Well, I guess it's, it's generically known as a technical computing software package, but it's had various like s- systems, you know, names of what it's for. The one that I always thought it should have is Mathematica, a system for doing things for which there is no system for doing. <sighs> um, because what it's really powerful at is if you have some kind of new problem, I mean, let's say you're an engineer and you're designing bridges, you just buy the bridge module from wherever mm-hmm. and that's, a, that's a, a known problem. You know, you, you, you gotta get your trusses the right dimensions, how strong is your steel? And, you know, you're just working out a particular case of a known problem. But what if you have a completely new kind of problem, something that nobody has ever solved before? there is no off the shelf software that's gonna do it for you. There's no spreadsheet or whatever. You have to invent, you know, not only the solution to your problem, you have to invent the tools that you're gonna to use to solve your problem. And I mean, that's a much more interesting place to be than just applying already known solutions. Um, but it's also, it's much harder and more frustrating in some ways. And what Mathematica is really good at is kind of a place where you can experiment with many different techniques and build up tools. And that's what, I mean, I use it regularly today um, doing lots of different things that have very little to do with the development of Mathematica. because I, I basically I've become a user, right? I mean, I used uh-huh. to be a developer, now I'm a user of it. And yes, I do curse my former self for certain bugs that never got fixed and <laughs> maybe never will because I have to live with them now. But I mean, so for example, a few years ago, I was doing some quilting with a robotic quilting machine. So this is a gigantic machine that does the stitching for a quilt. And we wanted to do, this was an X of mine, we wanted to do really complicated, elaborate patterns. And this is a difficult problem because when you're stitching with thread, you don't want to stop. Like if you want to go from one place to another, you have to cut the thread and pick up somewhere else. And the machine actually can't do that. It will just skip over and then you have to cut this so You want to try to have a single continuous stitch line. Um, and so the question is, how do you take a line drawing? You know, Somebody has an artist or whatever, or you've computed it, you have some line drawing and you want to figure out a pathway through all those lines where they're all connected. It's kind of like you want to do a drawing but you're not allowed to lift the pen. Mm. Right? You have to do the whole thing without lifting your pen. And now actually you can lift the pen, but it's like, it's really bad if you do. It causes a lot of trouble and you want to avoid it. So you want to minimize the amount of skips. And this turns out to be a mathematical problem, which for some reason is called the Chinese postman problem. It's similar, people may have heard of the traveling salesman problem. That's the standard mathematical problem. You know, the traveling salesman problem is you have like 10 cities you need to visit and you want to travel the shortest distance to get to each one of those different 10 cities it's an optimization problem. Um, street sweeper problem or Chinese postman problem is you have like a city and you need to sweep all the streets but you don't wanna sweep the same street twice. And It turns out you have to, you can't avoid it. Even a very simple city, you're gonna end up having to go over the same street twice but you wanna minimize that. So we looked at off the shelf quilting and embroidery software, these things do exist. But when we gave them our patterns, they just fell on their face. Like they could not handle the size and complexity of the designs. Mm -hmm. And so I had to write, You know, I spent a couple of months writing a fairly elaborate system in Mathematica using the Mathematica language and using its very high level, powerful optimization routines that it has built in and its graphics processing and all kinds of different things to make myself a tool that we could actually use to process the designs we wanted in order to be able to make the quilts that we wanted to make. So you know now we have a little business selling quilts, like we have periodic table quilts, and we have various yeah. interesting quilts that you can get. And like the designs, the stitch patterns for those are not something that would have been possible to make using commercially available software. Uh, and there's nobody else that makes quilts like that because you just can't do it. But we can because you know because I spent a long time writing this this piece of code in Mathematica. I was able to do this project because I had Mathematica available as a tool. And I was really familiar with it. And if I didn't, I might've just decided like, this is too hard, I'm not even gonna try. You know, and that's I, that's like the thing that is good about Mathematica is lets you more easily get over this sort of the, the hump of needing to have a tool to solve a problem. Which is not to say that there aren't other tools. I mean, a lot of people use Python, for example. There's various other systems that people use and In my opinion, the difference is that that Mathematica is more powerful significantly than any of those. Um, The counter-argument to that is that, you know, the most powerful programming languages in in the world is the one that you actually know and that you're familiar with and, you know, that's what's going to be most useful. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I know several languages and and my choice is always Mathematica because it's just a lot more powerful.
0: Wow, I think the idea of using this tool that you created to make a pattern for a quilt, and like if I went online and bought this quilt, I would have no idea unless you told me that that much complexity was behind it.
1: Um, yeah, and so I mean, there's I actually did both They're both um, quilting and embroidery, which are related but not the same. Qu- so quilting turns out to be this the street sweeper problem, whereas embroidery took me a long time to figure out what is the actual problem, and it turns out it's I forget what is the, if there's an f- official name for it, but Imagine uh, like your job is to paint the floor of a house and this house has really complicated hallways that like branch off in different directions. Like so you go down a hallway and then it branches and then that hallway branches again and you need to paint the floor. But you're not allowed to step on any place that you've already painted and just to make things more complicated, you have to you're only allowed to move the brush in one direction so. You, like you have to paint the whole floor when, in continuous brush strokes, all in the same direction and without ever stepping over someplace that you've already painted. So how do you do this? Well, you know, you fairly quickly realize that probably what you need to do is you need to walk to the far end of the longest hallway, the, like the farthest away hallway and work your way backwards from there. And um, it turns out it's a graph traversal problem. If you, you have to, think of the, the hallway as a graph, and you need to visit all the nodes of the graph in the right order and fill them in. So this is, this is what you need to do with embroidery, because if you have you know, some complicated shape, it may have nooks and crannies in this shape, some complicated outline, and you want to stitch the, you know, fill the area inside that shape with stitches that are all going in the same direction. And you can't just go and stitch over a place that you've already stitched. So it turns out to be, again, a quite complicated piece of mathematical analysis if you want to do anything beyond you know, the very simple and if you want to automate it completely. So again, this, this ex of mine, Nina Paley, who's a, a, a fairly well-known animator, like animated filmmaker, and we wanted to do an embroidered animation where like the frames of the movie would be rendered in embroidery and then we would photograph the embroidered images and I think it was 512 frames or something like that, like separate pieces of embroidery. So it needed to be really pretty much automated, but uh, I thought our movie came out really good and it was 100% Mathematica that was doing the digitizing. This complicated algorithm, which I spent months developing, laid out where every stitch was going to go and figured out, and and I have a whole long blog post about the complications of embroidery. Mm if you're trying to do it on this, you know, this kind of highly automated way to automatically produce efficient frame-to-frame consistent embroidery patterns.
0: Well, I feel like already I can see that every facet of who you are could be an entire radio episode in itself. Like you should you should start a podcast so that you can talk about all of these things in more detail. Um,
1: yeah, I'm dragging on too long on one topic, but yes, it's, I mean, I, it's kind of like I've gone through different phases, right? You know, I had the chemistry phase at the beginning and then, and then I spent a long time being a boring software developer. But since then, you know, it's just fascinating to be able to take a tool and apply it to a, an, an unexpected area. Yeah. Right? like you, you know I mean quilting is kind of a little old lady occupation not to be you know, sexist about it but you know it's like a it's like non-technically literate people sitting around with needles and sewing machines doing their thing which like there's nothing wrong with that that's an absolutely perfectly fine meditative activity people get a lot of enjoyment out of hand stitching quilts or, or whatever doing these traditional patterns that have been developed over generations but you know, what happens if we look at the intersection of quilting and let's take some serious technology and see what comes out as a result. And the result is we have these really weird quilts that people just don't make quilts like that because they don't think of applying the techniques from the areas that I'm familiar with from the software world.
0: So you're reminding me of this book that I'm reading right now. I'm not sure if you've heard of it or read it. It's called Range by David Epstein.
1: Uh, I have not heard of that now. And
0: it's basically about how generalists triumph in a specialized world, which is to say that it's better to learn about lots of things and be interested in lots of things so that when you're doing a specific task, you can kind of synthesize those and apply them to different areas. And the way that you talk about how you're applying uh, Mathematica to quilting is kind of reminding me of range. Yeah. Oh,
1: um, yeah. No, so I, I think that's that's a very good point he's making so the way i think of it is is what's called hybrid vigor um, which i don't know if you're familiar with so it's is this a is a term from from breeding like plant breeding so you know corn for example you you know you get these beautiful big ears of corn they look fantastic they're like much better than the corn from 100 years ago you know bigger and much higher yield and just better in all ways and uh, the way that those plants that grow those particular really good ears of corn, they're actually crossbred between two separate lines. So what they do is they make one purebred line. They like inbreed the corn, they self seed it over many generations and they get this gnarly, ugly looking, pathetic corn, but they have selected it for certain very specific characteristics that are really great. And then they do the same thing in a different direction on another line and they have a second gnarly, ugly looking, you know, kind of corn, but it's got certain other characteristics that are very desirable. And if you then cross those two lines, you know, you pollinate one with the other, then all the dominant genes come into play and the recessive genes don't express themselves. And that crossbreeding is then this fantastically great corn that's better than any other corn has ever been. And so what the farmers actually plant in bulk in most of the fields is those hybrids that the previous year they have made out of these two pure red. And the, you know, the idea is that it's like if you take two, two different specialties mm-hmm. and put them together, like you get, you get somebody who's really good at one thing and somebody who's really good at another thing and you get them to work together, that's when you can sometimes really make real serious advances in the world. Yeah. Um, and one of the sort of, I think, mega trends over the last few decades has been that computers and the sort of way of thinking that computers encourage, you know, like programmatic solutions, like let's not actually just do this ourselves. Let's make a system that does it automatically. Or you know, let's think about what is the real underlying problem here and how can we solve that in a really thorough way, not just kind of beat around the bush or come up with ad hoc solutions. Let's really understand the mathematics behind it and write a program that will give us the correct answer or you know, an optimal answer as best as we can get. That's been a really powerful idea to apply to a huge number, like one after the other different fields in the world have been revolutionized. Like take something as simple as UPS, delivering packages, right? So this classic travel, traveling salesman problem. The UPS guy needs to go to these houses on this route and how can they do that most efficiently? So one of the things that they figured out by applying computer thinking to this is left turns are expensive, right? Like if you're driving along, if you want to turn right, you can usually turn right, right away. But mm-hmm. if you need to turn left, you may end up waiting a long time. And so they, and you can quantify that, like in a given city, how much extra time does it cost you to make a left turn versus a right turn? And once you have that figure, you can then write your program. Because the the UPS guy, he doesn't just decide on his own which house to go to. There's a computer that has figured this out ahead of time before he even leaves the depot. What is the route going to be? And the algorithm that figures out that route can avoid left turns and can figure out something that might seem like a very counterintuitive route. But it's actually much faster because it's taking into account complexity that no human could could figure out.
0: Um, On the other end, (laughs) <laughs> this I feel like I haven't even dipped into the, the whole talking about elements in the periodic table, but I'm just so curious because you know so much about this. You talk about how there are these things that algorithms can figure out that are beyond like what the human mind could figure out. What are the things that, like, what do you think the limitations of these algorithms and computer programming are? Do you think that there are any, or do you think that there are things that we will always need humans for and certain problems that computers will never be able to solve?
1: Well, that's a you know big question. <laughs> I mean, it ultimately ends up being sort of a moral question, perhaps more so than a practical one. Yeah. I mean, computers, as they always say, they do what they're told. And they tend to end up having unintended consequences. It's a powerful tool, right? And you point it at something, it's going to do its thing. And that may be a great thing, or it might be a disaster. Just like, you know, a chainsaw, you can point that at a dead tree and it does a good job. It cuts the tree down. You point it at your house and you make, you know, a mess mm-hmm. um, or you let go of it for a second and it chops your leg off. Powerful tools are inherently by their very nature dangerous. And that's absolutely true of these computer techniques and algorithms and such. I mean, you just, just look at the last couple of elections, you know, who would have thought that, oh, like, Well, let's let's have some way for people to communicate with each other, and they could send messages, and wouldn't that be cool? Uh, You know, everybody could learn more, and we would find out what's going on all over the world more efficiently, and everybody could have their own voice, and you wouldn't have to be limited just to what a few. You know, there used to be four television channels, and and you could choose which one of these do you want to watch. And now it's like, what do you mean channel? You know, I just start a YouTube channel. It's like, boom, there's another new channel. Uh, Isn't that a great thing? So much information everywhere. And yet it's kind of been a disaster in some ways. And there's a lot of negative consequences that have happened in ways that nobody could possibly have anticipated before the thing was actually built. And we started seeing what happened with it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, like you said, that was a huge question and it gets very complicated. And there are so many questions off of that, but I do think I want to talk a little bit about your chemistry side and your work with elements. So this is total topic shift. Maybe this is a little bit abrupt, but you have all these interests. You seem interested in so many things and knowledgeable on so many things. What specifically interests you about chemistry and more specifically the elements and the periodic table?
1: Right, well, so like I said, I I got a bachelor's degree in chemistry so obviously that was like an early interest. Um, I think it mainly started with wanting to blow stuff up, which is a pretty, pretty common starting point for people interested in chemistry.
0: Oop, editing Eden here. I'm gonna interject really quick. A lot of this next part is censored. It might seem a little bit annoying, but I feel like some of the stuff that's said is a little bit risky and I don't need all of it on my show though there is the internet where you can find a lot of information. So I think it will be okay. Back to the show.
1: I mean, I I remember at one time I I found the recipe for gunpowder in my dad's encyclopedia. They had like this big stack of books that had all kinds of stuff in it. And it's like, wow, there's actual percentages for the ingredients to make gunpowder. And that seemed like a really good thing to have available. But then the question is, how do you get the ingredients you need?
0: Beep, beep and beep, So the beep
1: is easy. You just take some beep and grind it up. Uh, but where are you going to get beep, it? So it turns out, and this I believe is more or less still the case. You can get these at beep. And the thing is, you just can't get them both at the same beep, because they will figure out what you're doing. It's like if some kid comes in, some you know twelve-year-old comes in and wants to buy a jar of beep, and a jar of jars. knows what's up so you have to buy it from separate and actually many 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 years later decades later i learned you can actually get both of them also in much larger quantities much cheaper although they're less pure but that's fine and they don't ask any questions because you just go to the checkout and you know they don't know what's going on so you can buy both from the same not that i'm giving advice on explosives um anyway so i made a lot of gunpowder when i was a kid yes Uh, and And then I had a really, really good chemistry teacher in high school. I think this was, it was like, he was too good because he made me think that I was really interested seriously in chemistry as a career, which I actually wasn't. I was interested in making gunpowder because it was fun. And I was interested in computers. Like What I was really doing through most of high school and college was programming, like learning computer languages and writing programs while thinking that I wanted to be a chemist. And, you know, I kind of should have known better. It took me a year of graduate school to realize that. But that's actually, I guess, fairly common. A lot of people don't figure out what they want to do until much later. Um, I was also, I was really seduced by the names of chemical compounds. In fact, in the Molecules book, I have a whole section on the naming of compounds. And they're beautiful. They're just, they're beautiful names. But they're beautiful in an algorithmic way. It's like, what's beautiful about the names is the system behind them. And the fact that there is this kind of systematic naming scheme, which again was a clue that I wasn't really so much interested in the chemistry as in the logical structure of it, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the essence of computers and software. My parents are both math professors, were. So there's probably some genetic component being interested in the levels of abstraction. Anyway, so. When I then came back again to being interested in chemistry a couple decades later, that was completely by accident. I mean, I had not really been thinking about chemistry or elements or anything like that. I was completely focused on Mathematica, but my department, the user interface department, we moved to a new office space, like in a new building, and we needed a table. And for some reason, so I've been reading this book called Uncle Tungsten by Oliver Sacks, which is a cool book. Um, And I'm not sure why I was reading it. I mean, uh, I guess it was just a good book and I was reading it. And at the same time I was reading the book, I was looking at office supply catalogs for tables because we needed like a conference table to go in this new office. And then I read a chapter opens, like the first paragraph of chapter, he talks about when he visited a periodic table in the Kensington Science Museum with samples on it. And I thought that they had built a table shaped like a periodic table. And I thought that was just such a cool idea. Like, wow, that's really clever. Why have I not heard of that before? But then you know, I read the next sentence, and it was clear that it was just a misunderstanding. It's on the wall. It's like a wall display. They have a wall the display on the wall shaped like a periodic table, and then they have actual elements in each of the compartments there. But it's not a table. But I, you know, I had tables on my mind because we needed a table. And so this gave me this idea that I should make a periodic table. Mm -hmm. And instead of buying some ugly overpriced office table, I would just make a table for us. And so I did. I spent like a whole summer making this wooden periodic table table for just purely practical reasons, not with any sort of plan. It ended up with individual wooden tiles for each element that had the name and the symbol and everything engraved that were separate pieces of wood and they were loose with a little empty compartment underneath. Like I ended up making basically like 118 little individual boxes with little lids all assembled together into this big table. And so then obviously you want to have elements to put in those little compartments. Like it's, it's, what are you going to do? You can't just not fill in the compartments. And my dad had always been a mineral collector. He had huge numbers of rocks and crystals and things all the time and he'd always like whenever he would go on a trip somewhere he'd go to a conference he would come back with another rock and so I thought this will be my my little lifetime collecting hobby and 30 years from now I'll have a bunch of elements right whenever I go somewhere I'll pick up another element or two but it didn't work out that way because first of all I discovered eBay yeah it's like, oh my god, I could just actually order six different elements this morning, and very quickly sort of ballooned. And I, I immediately realized, like, if I don't write down something about each, like, I need to take a picture of each one and write a description of what is it, where did I get it, what's interesting about it, because otherwise I'll just I'll forget. Like, there's no way I can keep track of these hundreds of different elements uh, samples that I'm getting. And of course, I made it into a little website because this this was kind of um, Uh, early 2000, maybe 2001 or something like that. Anyway, so, you know, the web was was established, but it was fairly new. And everybody that had a hobby of any kind was putting up a website about it. Mm -hmm. Like if you collected Pez dispensers, I mean, eBay was invented by a guy to sell Pez dispensers and and buy it like trading Pez dispensers. That was the origin of eBay which is just to give you an idea of how random the world is. And now it's, you know, one of those guys was Elon Musk and, and you know, now he's the richest man in the world or second or whatever. Um, you know, so I started putting up this little website where I had a picture of each thing and a description of it, et cetera. And then I kind of got in relatively rapid succession, these two phone calls, one from the people who do the Ig Nobel awards, Mark Abrams is his name, uh, and this is like a joke prize they give for accomplishments that cannot or should not be repeated or something like that. And there's a Journal of Irreproducible Results. It's like a joke scientific journal. Anyway, they give out these awards every year, and they're always funny, and they have a ceremony. And anyway, so he was saying, would, he, he's basically asking me, would you be willing to get the 2002 Ig Nobel Prize in Chemistry? Mm-hmm. Because he has this, he, he always, Checks because for some people it might be professionally very embarrassing to get one of these <laughs> things. Uh, and he's, he's very polite about it. And I said, What are you kidding? I mean, I can't imagine a greater honor than to be to get one of the uh, Ig Nobel Prize. I mean, that was like amazing. And then I went and had an acceptance speech there, and that was fun. Uh, and then this call from the editor in chief at Popular Science Magazine asking him to write a monthly column for his magazine about elements. And I was like, what on earth makes you think that I'm qualified to write a column about elements? Like I had never done any sort of writing of that nature at all, but I guess he saw my website and he saw all the little descriptions and he's basically was offering me a column. And I was like, "Um, what am I gonna say no? I mean, that's ridiculous. Of course I'm gonna say yes and then figure out how am I going to do that? And that, that was kind of the slippery slope. Because I spent 10 years every month doing a column about something to do with chemistry. At first, it was elements like for the first year, but then we realized that really should branch out to chemistry in general. And that led to, you know, writing books and then this led to, you know, making apps. And this led to me making more money doing that than I was earning at Wolfram and realizing that like I could actually do this as a profession and I wouldn't need a job. So, You know, it's just like one thing after another, no particular plan, just kind of saying yes every once in a while to what seemed like a crazy opportunity. That's how I got back into being interested in in elements. And of course, you know, the fact is that elements are tremendously fascinating. I I spent basically 10 years building up the collection, which then became the book that I wrote uh, in 2009.
0: Yeah, well, I mean... You mentioned just this book offhandedly, look, oh, and then you just wrote these books. But this book sold over a million copies, like I mentioned earlier, and these are massively successful and in homes all around the world.
1: The book was good. I mean, it started with a poster, actually. So I kind of was interested. So I had kids around that time too. They were born in like 96 and 99. So when you have kids and digital cameras are a new thing, I think an awful lot of people sort of got interested in photography. And so I started taking a lot of pictures and I first started taking pictures of my element samples. I would just take like a little snapshot of it. But over time I started putting more and more effort into the photography and getting nice looking pictures of all the elements. And eventually I got to the point where I had like one really nice picture of almost all the elements. I had to then go back and fill in a few that I had not gotten good ones of. And then I thought, you know, well, I'll make a poster because why not? And that was like, people are buying my poster. This is great. I guess I'll have to print more of them. So the poster came several years before the book. And then it's a while later, I realized that, you know, I probably could write 300 words or so about each element. And so I kind of wrote up a proposal and found an agent and shopped it around to publishers and things as, you know, like we could do this book. And I think I was lucky to find. A nice publisher who was interested in the the concept and and I think they were happy to have found me also after the book was successful. And yeah, I mean it just it just sort of happened right it's not like it was a plan, but I think that's it's in the nature of things that you spend really an inordinate amount of time on right, I mean the amount of time that I put into. Collecting these things, you know, just scouring the Internet and the rest of the world for interesting examples of what you could do with a certain element and then finding something to write about it. It's like, I don't even want to think about how many hours that was, how many years. Yeah, And that's what you need to do. If you want to come up with something that is actually kind of stands out and is interesting and different and not something that people have seen before.
0: I'm not sure if you've heard this quote. So backtracking a little, I did an interview with this chemist From Oregon State University, named Ma Subramanian, he discovered a new pigment of blue in 2009. And in preparing for that interview, I talked to my Uncle Eric, who actually mentioned you on the phone call, which is why I ended up reaching out. But Uncle Eric told me about this quote, chance favors the prepared mind, which is... Oh yeah,
1: yeah, chance favors the prepared.
0: Yeah, and then in my interview, I had it as one of the questions, and the chemist brought it up before I got the chance to. So I was wondering if you've heard of that quote and if you think that that rings true for you.
1: Oh yeah, that's absolutely the case. I mean, the the world is constantly throwing possibilities at you, right? And the normal thing usually is to just kind of keep walking. That's like, it's the, the normal thing most of the time for most people all the time is you just kind of keep going in the direction that you're going. And you know, 50 years later, you die. It's not really necessarily the best plan in life. So I tend to, and I think a lot of people who have ended up doing interesting things have the same attitude: is like, keep your eyes open. You know, don't necessarily go wild. I I'm, I know some people who do this too much, and they end up completely scramble and go nowhere. But mm-hmm. you know, keep your eye open, and if there's an opportunity that really feels like it's pulling at you. You're like basically dropping out of graduate school. That was in many ways not a great idea, right? I was a graduate student at Berkeley and I, you know, highly selective school. If I just kept going on autopilot, I'd be a chemistry professor somewhere, probably with tenure, probably, you know, with a bunch of graduate students and bored out of my mind. But instead, it was just so obvious to me that this was working on Mathematica at the time was the thing to do. And so I just did that. I, so I have a a story about this there's a guy we, we did a project after I, I started this app company with my friend max we were doing ipad apps so there was a period of time some time ago now when ipad apps were a thing and you know, the ipad was new and people were trying to figure out what are we going to do with this and there were all kinds of different ideas that people had, of different kinds of apps you could make some of them successful some of them not so successful and we published a few like the elements had an app that was quite successful and We published a few other interesting apps and then we got this bizarre phone call from Björk, like world's most famous Icelandic singer. She had apparently seen like a couple of different apps that she liked and she just called up the developers of those apps, like half a dozen different apps and said, would you like to come to Iceland and talk about, you know, I have an idea for an app. And again, it's like, what am I gonna say, no? I mean, of (laughs) course, obviously uh, I'll be on the next flight. And so I showed up there and, and there was uh, several other people there, including this one kid. He was like 16 or 17, something like that, who had written a beautiful little app called SoundDrop. It was very simple, very elegant, little sort of a musical thing where you would draw lines and little balls were falling and, and you could make tunes that way. And, you know, he was in high school and he was, I guess he played drums and he had just developed this little app. And she liked it and he came and we all talked about apps. we ended up doing an app, which was an okay app. I mean, it was not great, but it was okay. I spent a lot of time talking to him in the process of developing this app. But like a year later, I met him in Palo Alto somewhere. I forget why. And you know, we were just like walking down the street chatting and he wanted my advice about, um, oh, so so the thing was like when he came to Iceland, his guidance counselor in high school had advised him not to go to Iceland because he had missed too much school. (gasps) Like, oh my God, talk about malpractice of of a high school guidance counselor to think that a week of school in some high school in Arizona or whatever is more important than flying to Iceland to meet with Bjork, talk about an app, like, come on. Anyway, so a year later, I'm talking to him and he had to choose between going to college or Bjork had asked him to join her band. And his, like he had these, he developed these kind of computerized instruments things and he would like perform on stage, but he's really driving his software. And it took me two seconds to say, just go, be you know, be a rock star (laughs) for (laughs) crying out loud. You know, you can come back a year later and go to college or start an app company or whatever you want. But in in the entire rest of your life, you are never going to get a phone call from Bjork asking if you'd like to go on tour with her. Like that, that phone call isn't going to happen again. Certainly not if you say no the first time. I'm very proud of myself for the fact that he did not go to college. Like I talked to high schooler out of going to college and it was absolutely the right thing. And I don't actually know what he's doing right now, but you know, he had a great time. And later I got to see him performing in some concert, whatever with Bjork and it was great. And then he, I think he started an app company and I think he sold it to Google or something. So he's doing Okay. And that was just a great example of just pay attention to these opportunities and don't be too scared to say yes to them. Like every once in a while, you just have to say yes. And sometimes that will turn out to be a really bad idea, but I don't know. I mean, in my case, I can count the number of times when a thing like that has come up and when I've said yes and they have all been absolutely the right thing to do,
0: I think. Well, then to the outsider, like me, you seem like you have all these crazy stories meeting Bjork and having all these awesome career explorations. Like your life is just this awesome, cool thing that has so much success in everything that you do. And it seems like you never make mistakes. And I know that. The oh, ed- no, no,
1: no, 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 no. no. I, That's-
0: <laughs> I mean, I know that that is not true for anybody and that it's an illusion, but can you describe some times when you've struggled on something or made a mistake that you regretted or something that you learned from in a project or a class or anything else in your life.
1: I mean, there's just so many, but I mean, I don't, I, it's like, it's hard to list them because I don't think about them. Mm. You know, it's like working at Wolfram. I spent an entire summer going down a blind alley of, of how we could reshuffle how we were doing stuff. And it turns out, you know, by the end of the summer it's was like, this is just not going to work. And I need to cut my losses, throw that away, and start over again. And fine, whatever. So we go on. And I could could mention some relationships that were a bad idea in retrospect, (laughs) but maybe I shouldn't. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's just lots of things. I mean, the app company, for example, right? So Max and I founded, and and John Cromey, we founded Touch Press, and we published the Elements app. And we published, you know, like 20 or so different apps. And some of them were really good. We had a Disney animated app that was iPad app of the year in 2013 or something like that. And, you know, I thought it was really solid work. Like these were quality, interesting projects. And in the end, like people just didn't buy them anymore. Like there was a period of several years where people would buy our apps and we made money. And then things shifted. You know, people stopped paying for apps. Nowadays, who pays for an app? Apps are free, right? And the kinds of apps that we were making, which were basically like books, like a sort of super enhanced ebook, they basically don't exist anymore. There were several companies that started doing the same thing at the same time as we did. They're all out of business Mm -hmm. and it's just not a thing anymore. You know, you could say that was a failure. I mean, we lost our investors money for which I'm sure they were unhappy, but you know, we did good work and and then it was over. And I don't think it was a, by any means of you know a wasted exercise, I, I still think that people should buy these apps. Like, these were good apps, people uh-huh. should have bought them more. But there's you know, there's all kinds of ways you can analyze why people didn't. But there you go. It it was a failure in the end. I mean, technically speaking, it was a failure. It went out of business. Well, actually, get the assets got bought by another company for nothing. But I would not trade that experience for anything. That's why I got to meet New York, right? It's because we had an app yeah. company.
0: I mean, I just think with people like you from the perspective of a student like me, hearing about times when you've encountered trial and error and things you've learned from something that in the end maybe turned out to be a failure as you describe it. It's inspiring to know that that's just like kind of part of it. And it it makes you less scared to try things and take these risks that you've taken throughout your entire career, at least. Yeah,
1: I mean, I could also just be lucky. I mean, the thing is, it's it's very, it's difficult giving people advice to take risks, right? Because risk means you might fail. And at some point you end up, Drunk on the street corner and homeless because you failed too many times. Like that happens too. Yeah. So I think it's important to kind of have some judgment. Like risk for its own sake is not a good thing. People tell young people, do what you're passionate about, you know, go and do what you love doing. And this sounds kind of like very hippie, long haired advice, right? Sort of like, oh, Float on the clouds if you love that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way I think of it is that, like, the reason this is good advice is because the thing that you are really passionate about and love doing, that's the thing that you'll work the hardest at. Right. Like, if you want to be the best at something, it doesn't matter what that thing is. If you want to be the best at it, you're going to have to work really, really hard. You know, you look at people who seem like they're just a natural, you know, some athlete or whatever. Well, No, he's not just naturally a great athlete. He trains for eight hours a day solid. And then the other eight hours he's awake, he's thinking about training or he's whatever. Like it's a tremendous amount of work to do anything really interesting, like seriously interesting and new and different in the world. Huge amount of work. And if you're just doing it because your parents decided that that was a good career for you or something, you're simply not going to put that kind of effort into it. You know, your parents say you'll become a doctor and you become a doctor and you'll be an okay doctor, you know, but you're not going to be a great doctor. You'll be an okay doctor. Whereas if you do the thing that just really pulls you, that like you can't not do it and you let yourself say yes to that and you spend 16 hours a day doing nothing but that thing, whatever it is, there you have the opportunity to do something important. And I think that's the, the sort of true meaning of this do what you love advice is do what you'll work at do the thing that you're willing to actually spend a ridiculous amount of time and effort on because you're going to get you know much more uh, rewarding experiences out of it
0: yeah i mean i feel like your entire life from what i've heard today um seems to be figuring out what you're really passionate about and kind of going with it you talk about this switch between software and and chemistry going back and forth just with whatever you like and running with your ideas and taking opportunities as they come. And so I'm curious to know what you have your eye on next as we finish up here.
1: Well, so I'm currently working on books about mechanical things, which I started a couple of years ago. Just literally yesterday turned in my edits to manuscript on a book about engines. Mm. Uh, And now I'm starting, I've sort sort of started collecting a book about tools. Because tools are something that I've always, you know, like I built a, built my own house um, and uh, have built many things. We just built a fence for our new puppy, uh, so I've always like I've had a lot of tools. I like tools. I've had you know lots of tools, and have many opinions about tools. So I'm working on a book about tools, at which you know that'll be the third in a series of mechanical devices books. I'm not really sure. I don't really have a plan for what would come after that. That's like another two years or so of work to finish that. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, I am very, very excited to see what it ends up being because I I know it will be fantastic. And I guess that brings us kind of to the end of our interview. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's fun.
0: This has been Eden on 88.9 The Bridge, joined with Teo Gray with my show Garden of Eden, which you can listen to every Saturday at 10 a.m. I hope you have a great rest of your day.